medicine's kind of the same way. It's not sort of one person. It shouldn't be one person making all of the um, decisions. It's a, it's a team-based sport. Hey everyone, and welcome to this episode of Leading the Rounds. On this episode, we interviewed Dr. Roxana Donishu. Dr. Donishu is a clinical scholar in the Department of Dermatology at Stanford University. Throughout her career, she's received a number of prestigious accolades, including the Goldwater Scholarship, the Howard Hughes Fellowship for her research work, and the P.D. Soros Fellowship for New Americans. She was also recently named chair of the P.D. Soros Alumni Organization. Dr. Donishu is active on Twitter, where she's using her platform to promote social justice and equity. She's also a thought leader in applications of artificial intelligence and machine learning in dermatology. Welcome to Leading the Rounds. Hey, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Leading the Rounds. We are so excited today, not just because we have we have an excellent guest, but because today is Caleb's first day of M3. <laughs> Caleb, how are you feeling? I know you just got out of the hospital. Why don't you tell me a little bit about what it's like to be back in the clinic? Yeah, it's good. M3 is starting off quick. Uh, first day already in the OR, already uh, in my surgery rotation. So starting out quick, just trying to pick up and soak up as much knowledge as possible and excited for this interview though. So I know you've, you've been practicing on your fake skin, but have you um, had any opportunity to put in sutures today? I did. That's what wow. I was actually doing before. So yes and no. So uh, it was, I was just scrubbed on a transplant case. And so um, after everything was done, I got to throw some sutures, but um, the patient was deceased because it was a transplant. So yes and no, but it was Very a great, great experience for this morning and um, great start to the day. Awesome. Very cool, man. I'm a little envious, but also not envious because <laughs> I got to spend my day in the lab. So that's always a good day for me. Uh, but mentioning skin, today's guest is Dr. Roxana Donescu, clinical scholar at Stanford Medicine and uh, in, the in the Department of Dermatology and graduate of the MSTP program. She's also a PD Soros Fellow and serves as the chair of the PD Soros Fellows Association. Is that correct, Dr. Donescu? That's correct. Yeah. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you. So we'd like to start our interviews off asking our leaders, um, what is your leadership philosophy and how did you get there? So my leadership philosophy is that we can succeed as a team and we should succeed as a team. And so I think I realized, you know, that that was sort of the way that I liked to do things very early on. Um, when I was actually in medical school, I was involved in student government and was um, a president of the Medical Student Association. And I just found that surrounding yourself with wonderful, strong people who are smarter than you, who have different perspectives than you, um, and actually engaging them in the process of getting things done synergistically um, just leads to really good outcomes. I, I love working on, on teams and with other people. And um, I don't really feel like, and medicine's kind of the same way. It's not sort of one person. It shouldn't be one person making all of the um, decisions. It's a, it's a team-based sport, um, whether that team is with residents and medical students or with other specialists. You think you've always had that 
team-based identity or approach to life and to the tasks you've pursued throughout your life? Or do you think that was developed in some interest while you were growing up? I mean, I'll be honest, I was not the most athletic kid growing up. So it, it wasn't <laughs> playing team sports. I, I was on um, a basketball team in middle school. <laughs> and uh, it was quite atrocious. As my younger brother recently reminded me, um, when I was talking to him, he's he's 10 years younger than me. And like, six foot plus and I'm like five three so I you know just the skills were not there for that um you know I was like most people uh I was a competitor growing up but more in the academic realm like math and science competitions (laughs) academic decathlon like that's where I really would shine and those are not as much sort of team-based sports Um, so I think that philosophy really did come about like in college when I was an engineer, uh, studying bioengineering and in bioengineering, a lot of our problem sets were incredibly difficult and challenging. And we would get together as a group and work on these like difficult problems until like two, 3am at night, you know? a problem set might be only four or five questions long, but would just take hours and hours and hours. And I think that that was a time where that really developed for me, like working with the on teams of bioengineers, whether it's like on problem sets, or um, we also had a lot of project based uh, coursework, trying to design, you know, new tools or technologies. So I was a chemistry major and I had a lot of friends in the chemical engineering department and I was very envious of the idea of design team. I thought it was so cool. It's like experiential learning and it's just awesome. So yeah, I want to ask, however, um, given, given this fundamental shift in your, your perspective on going from someone who was very competitive in academics to then somebody who was almost forced to collaborate what is your take on the change from step one becoming pass fail? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it was like a forced collaboration because I've generally been like a pretty social person that enjoys working with other people and learning from other people. And so for me, I actually felt like going from that was just like very, it felt at home. Like I, I enjoyed being in that situation more than I think competing on my own as I had like growing up. Um, I personally believe that step one wasn't really designed as a test where the number is supposed to give us any insight into things that actually matter for being a successful physician. Um, So I personally was in favor of that change Um, because that's not how the test was designed. And there's no data that it actually measures things that we care about, um, such as, you know, being a good physician, having good patient outcomes, being able to work with your colleagues on difficult cases. One of the things I worry about, though, with it switching to pass fail is that step two just becomes the new step one. And people just judge that as a measure of whether they accept students or not. Do you think that's a better measure of that? Or do you think somehow we're going to have to work around the problem of just using a numerical score to 
rate how people are prepared for residency? Yeah, I think we really need to, I mean, we're talking about using these scores for a sort of basic core competency, right? So you need to pass the test to show that you know the basic sort of information that you need to know to become a physician. And obviously I'm not a program director. One thing I've heard is that program direct, the, the problem is the way that the system is set up, program directors get overwhelmed um, with a large number of applications and have to kind of pick something to use as a cutoff. And I think there's been a lot of discussion, again, I'm not a program director, among program directors about how do we do fair holistic review? Um, and, but also like, you know, be able to actually do that, right? And some of, there's been discussions around like application caps and how does that work? Like there's been data and I don't know the data off the top of my head, but I was just seeing people post like a certain percentage of applicants take up X number of interviews with a, in a system where everyone's allowed to apply everywhere. And with the, at least last year with Zoom interviews, like it was much easier to accept a bunch of interviews. And so, I mean, if you have the same number of X applicants taking up like, and I'm just throwing a number out there, like 40% of the interviews, that's also a problem to it that I think application caps may help with. Of course, there are limitations there as well. So I think it's a difficult problem and a discussion that needs to be had like more extensively with the people mm -hmm. who are major stakeholders. Um, program directors definitely being one of them, medical students, um, residents, faculty. Uh, but I, I mean, in terms of that test becoming pass-fail, it's a good first step because people have to remember that when that test first came out, it was not used to try to decide who can apply for a competitive residency or not. That's, that's not really how it was ever intended to be used. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't know that actually. And I guess it's just a, a product of me being in medical school in the 21st century. Um, but we want to reroute our discussion to something maybe a little more in your wheelhouse or you could call more of your passion, which is technology, technology and medicine. How did you come, was it your, your background in bioengineering that kind of got you interested in the idea of using disruptive technologies in medicine? Yeah, so I think I was probably always bound for this in some way or another because I grew up in a family of engineers. There were no physicians in my family. Um, and so in undergrad, I decided to study bioengineering because I wasn't really sure whether I wanted to go to medical school or not. I was really interested in research and really interested in the way that technology could affect medicine. So that I would say that, you know, it's probably like baked in from very early age um, with the family that I grew up in um, ending up where I did. With these technologies, I know artificial intelligence is advancing and some people say it's going to take over some specialties in medicine. What do you see in the future with artificial intelligence and new technologies and how they are applied to the current system that we have in medicine? So I think that artificial, I mean, this could probably be like many, many, many hours of conversation. <laughs> um, so I think that 
artificial intelligence technologies has the capacity to definitely offload some burdens within medicine and to provide uh, decision support tools for physicians. I think that a lot of people who actually work deeply in this space believe that it's going to be more of a synergistic role between AI and physicians rather than necessarily like trying to like completely replace a physician. Um, I actually get a little bit annoyed with uh, sensationalist headlines like that because I think most of the people who work in that space recognize the limitations of the technology and are actually working towards good, like working towards creating Mm -hmm. a world where things are more efficient, things are more fair. Um, So that's, that's kind of how I see on like a, like what the future is going to look like. We have a lot of things to address um, to get to that future. I think fairness and equity are on our minds at all times medicine as a field, even before you inject any technology into it, has major issues with um, inequities in care, um, racism, sexism, you know, um, different protected populations like the LGBTQ plus community. And so we just want to make sure that when we develop these technologies, they are not making some of those problems worse. And some of it comes from if you take biased data and you try to train an algorithm on it, you are going to get a biased result. But it's not always the data. Like if you ask the question in a biased way, your model may be even if the data is unbiased, you can, you know, get a biased model. And the other thing is like, you might just get a biased model anyway, even if you think you've done everything right. Um, so I think that's one major thing that we have to work on. Um, I think the other thing is sort of making sure that these models are broadly applicable um, and you know work well across different settings, across different patient populations. That's something that I'm really interested in and I can talk about more if you guys want. When we're, we as the medical community are moving towards this, what are some things that, the questions that we should be asking ourselves so that we don't end up building another system based on more complex math and computer science that still has systemic bias in it? Well, I mean, I think the first question you can ask yourself is, is my data representative, right? Is the data that I'm training on representative? But I think at, at, at the core, once the algorithm is designed, you should tr- test it on a um, diverse population and look for signals of concern, right? Like you should do that in the testing phase. And then there should be some form of post-market surveillance on top of that, because even if you have the most, you know, what you think to be a fair representative test uh, population, um, you may catch things in the post-market fees that, uh, you know, that, that surprises you. Um, so I think that we just have to be really vigilant uh, all throughout both like development, testing, and after things actually get applied as well. 
we have this problem outside of technology as well, like with clinical trials, like there's not enough diversity in clinical trials either. So it's not something that is uniquely a AI or technology issue. I think it's like a broader issue within medicine that we need to address. But but I think there are many different steps to do that. And like, for example, if something is going to get FDA approval um, and I can just give you an example. It doesn't exist. So there are no FDA approved um, algorithms for in dermatology, for example. But my hope and expectation would be that if something was going to do, for example, triaging in dermatology based on skin images, there needs to be evidence that that algorithm was trained on a diverse uh, range of skin tones and that algorithm was tested on a diverse range of skin tones uh, before regulatory approval is given. So that's just like an example of something that could come up in the future um, that I think, you know, should be addressed, particularly at the regulatory level. And I like that example because it, it definitely was something that I think all of us, Caleb, myself, who don't have a lot of AI experience, and then all of our listeners can understand. Um, but if I could play devil's advocate for a second, you alluded to the fact that that there's more there's more bias in places in medicine and science other than just in like AI. If this if people are are touting AI as like the next step for for one aspect of medicine. Why, why are we ready to take that next step if we still have so much work to do and things that came before and, and the systemic problems that we're still fighting? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. We have, I mean, people have talked about, we have huge public health in, in, you know, inequities and you know, there are, people bring this up over and over again we could actually significantly improve human health if we put more investment into some of these areas instead of investment into um, fancy technologies and, and mm -hmm. you know things that have a lot of hype around them, but maybe haven't actually been proven to you know, improve patient care yet. And I'm saying that as somebody who spends a lot of time doing this kind of both you know, AI research and prior to this, a lot of genomics research. And there's, I'm not saying that there haven't been a lot of fruits out of that. There certainly have been. Um, and I do think that we should just, you know, we should be funding both. And we have researchers that focus on each type of problem. Um, but we have to recognize as people who are working, I just personally feel as someone working in technology, I recognize that there are other interventions that should be well-funded that are public health interventions and are maybe not as, ex you know, in, I don't want to say they're not as exciting because I still think it's, it's exciting and important. Maybe not as hyped up is, is, is the word I want to use as AI and, you know, tech and these other technologies. There are interventions that are not as hyped up that will actually save way more lives. Um, and we should make sure that we fund those initiatives. I guess one, one thing that I was worried about, um, I still am worried about as someone who's just starting to learn this stuff, um, is if we haven't fixed the system before taking that next step, there may be an issue that we don't recognize or we don't know of yet just because we haven't uncovered it. And we could get so far down the rabbit hole that that, that might be a, almost a near permanent part of the system. 
because of the way that that AI and, and machine learning have been pushing our ability to not just produce, but also interpret and consume data. Yeah, and I mean, that is, isn't that always the issue with technology, right? Like, it seems to me that many times the, the pace of innovation outstrips the moral obligations, the obligations of making sure that what we're doing is actually going to improve patient lives, is going to improve humanity's life, right? Um, And you can see that around all the discussion with social media, which you know I'm a big user of, right? You know, we, we developed all these social media technologies. They became ingrained in our day-to-day lives and they also function much off of algorithms algorithms that are developed to make you keep coming back to that Mm -hmm. social media to keep clicking on stuff and as a result we have created echo chambers we have created channels for spreading medical misinformation very quickly to large numbers of people and created echo chambers around medical misinformation and so I think that's just the story of technology, unfortunately, mm-hmm. is that we build things, but we don't always think about the consequences. And I think one thing about medicine is it does move a little bit slower um, than other domains. Um, I think that, you know, there should be a balance in medicine between integrating innovation to improve patient care, but also being cautious because if your technology has an unforeseen effect, the implications can be quite severe for both um, patients and their families and the uh, care team taking care of them. You brought up social media and the rapid spread of misinformation. I read a study once that said about social media that said false information spreads like four times quicker on social media than true information. How do physicians balance if they're trying to promote their brand, posting things that they know will gain traction versus committing to tell the truth and tell the scientific facts when, you know, science isn't always the catchy thing. You know, for example, you know, with nutrition, you could say, you know, eat a little bit less, eat leafy greens and vegetables, eat a balanced diet. And that's like the truth for the majority of people, but that's not what catches wind and that's not what goes viral. And so how does a scientist balance those acts of trying to promote themselves and trying to grow versus committing to telling the truth and, and only telling reliable scientific information? Yeah, I mean, I think if you are trying to go viral or, um, you know, something like that, I think that's kind of antithetical to science personally. Um, And I don't know, like, to me, like medicine and science should always be about promoting the truth. Um, and, And it can get complicated because sometimes you don't have the evidence. And so there can be differing viewpoints within reason. And I think scientific debate is a very important part of the discourse, especially what we don't when we don't know. And I think as physicians, we do have to be nuanced about what we do or don't know, um, as we, you know, as we address that. But I guess, for me, 
when I started my account, I was a, I think, you know, when I started actually using my account more, not maybe when I opened it, but when I started using my account more, I was a graduate student in genetics and I was using it to follow scientific conferences, to tweet about conferences. And for years, that's pretty much what I've been using it for is to either talk about papers that I find interesting. Um, now it's like a dropping clinical pearls uh, about dermatology or try to like provide glimpses into what it's like to being a working mother. Um, you know, so definitely like post about silly things that have happened in my day, like as I'm struggling to balance the many demands of being like a developing physician scientist and raising a toddler. But I guess for me, it was sort of never about um, going viral. And I think that if you are a believer in science and medicine, like that's your, your job should be to like, per, you know, post things that are within the lines of evidence that we, we know and not, not trying to necessarily like gain like social media clout or whatever. So it's reminded me of one of your tweets actually uh, from 16 hours ago. <laughs> you were responding to Dr. Jamie Friedman who said I'm a pediatrician and my kids rarely eat vegetables and are addicted to screens. And your response was, I'm a dermatologist who loves perfumes, hot showers, and hiking at high altitudes. Okay, but I do wear sunscreen and a hat. I think, I think it's funny. I, I really, I like, I guess, I, I personally struggle with social media because I, I don't really know what to post sometimes because I don't know if like it, if I'm um, maintaining my like professional identity as a physician or like that, that level of professionalism that I need to be treated with to be an effective doctor. Um, but I think that you were able to do that very successfully. And there are other doctors out there like Dr. Glockenflocken who are able to be funny, be comedic on social, on social media, but still are respected. And how do you, how do you balance that fine line? And actually I think he has a philosophy, which I love, by the way, I love his videos. Like so I, funny. I watch them every single one, every single one. <laughs> and I make my husband watch them and he's not even a physician or in medicine. So uh, he actually finds some of them really funny because he's spent enough time <laughs> around people in medicine. He's an engineer. Um, but I think he has a philosophy, which I love is like never punch down. Like if you bring in humor, like have it be sort of like about yourself or like a situation that's that's funny, but never, never, ever, you know, punch down, um, which I think is, in medicine, like that is not something we should be doing at all. So I think that's one uh, philosophical thing. And it's like, I also think that it's just like, your my name is on my social media account. And so if I wouldn't joke about it, you know, in person, or, you know, with my name attached to it, like I shouldn't be saying it. And I think that that's something that, you know, that's, that's just who I like, uh, that I just I'm just myself and mm -hmm. you know that's who I am like if you were to know me like that I would probably like joke around like that as well um so I, I feel like that's sort of what I go with I think some of this is changing because social media is getting so big but how do you also balance like I think more in years past 
there would be questions about allowing patients to be friends with you or follow you on, on social media and how much of your away from work life do you share versus how much do you keep it professional? How do you balance that, that act? I mean, I think that on, on Twitter, it's a little bit hard. Like for instance, on Facebook, like it's only for, at least for me, it's like people I know in real life and, you know, not patients but on twitter you can't really keep track of it's it's very public yeah everybody can see it unless your account is locked so i think that's a little bit um more difficult necessarily to regulate and again i think that it kind of just goes back to your each person's personality right some people are very private they don't want to share anything um at some point i made a sort of a concerted effort to do share about my experiences with motherhood because when I became a mom and I found I found that it was so much of a struggle to balance like all the things that I was trying to achieve with work and parenting and I just wanted to be honest and real about that because I wished that you know I really respected role models who were honest and real about that to me privately like they're not on social media but like it really like uplifted me because then I knew like I'm not the only one that like struggles with some of these you know issues and I'm not alone in this and so I think that that's like one of the reasons I do provide that insight um just so people know that like that's I mean that's just like an aspect of my life but I also recognize that some people don't want to share that information and some people may not even want to read that information they may say like that's not relevant to your identity as a scientist I don't want to see that in your feed and that's I mean I think that's fine but that's just sort of who I am and so um that that's sort of you know and 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 if you ever see you know if you ever see like a, a scientific talk by me like my thesis defense had like a pr- like a princess bride joke in it right <laughs> like one of the talks that I give that talks about like different skin tones has like a like game of thrones like reference and so like in reality I just try to even when it's like a serious scientific talk I do like to keep it have moments of lightheartedness and um moments that um, are a little bit more relatable. That's just, that's just in my personality. So I might have to ask you for advice. Cause I am, I am trying to make my own, my, actually my first scientific oral presentations coming up. Um, and I'm not the kind of person to give a, a dry presentation. So I'm gonna have to reach out for advice. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to be authentic to yourself. If you like don't want to make jokes, then don't make jokes in your talk. Oh, but, but I, I do want to make jokes. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but if you do want to make, if you do want to like throw in some reference or be clever and, you know, that, that's, you know, that's up to you. And I, I used to joke that, that like, I would sort of judge whether or not people like chuckled, you know, at, at my like Princess Bride joke or not, when I was giving the talk to uh, different audiences, like, you know, I, I would judge if like nobody chuckled or, you know, and maybe I'm just not good at delivering the joke, but I did get good laugh (laughs) in my thesis defense. So I feel like somebody like appreciated or at least humored me, uh, for that. Well, isn't your defense mostly the people you know and love? 
it 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 is a lot of people you know and love. <laughs> Maybe that's why. It's okay. My my girlfriend also says that I am not the most humorous guy. I I joke around a lot, but not. She says I'm not funny to most people. So I, I understand. Funny, the, thank you, Peter. <laughs> Something a, a little bit of a, a side note. I wanted to ask how how has your um, your social media following affected your professional life at Stanford? Yeah, so I think that's actually really interesting. I've made a lot of friends on social media at other institutions, both within the you know within the clinical and the scientific academic realm, and. If it weren't for social media, like I wouldn't have colleagues at, you know, Penn and Harvard that I became familiar with that I've had phone calls with text messaging to like ask for advice, like, you know, with a, you know, a complicated case that they may be the expert in, you know, the national expert in. Um, so I think that's actually been really useful. Um with the, you know, we wrote a perspective piece in JAMA Dermatology about. Um, we had a, of a dermatology, a Twitter journal club and Dr. Ade Adamson and I wrote a perspective. We've only met one in, once in person. And I had actually, when we wrote that perspective, had never written a perspective piece, had only written, um, I guess, cut and dry scientific pieces that, <laughs> you know, you don't inject, you don't inject too much of like your personal voice or perspective into those. And he like, walked me through how to do that um, all within sort of electronic exchanges like and exchanges through like Twitter DMs for discussions. Um, and so, you know, I think that this is a way that you find new colleagues and, you know, we have an, we have a session coming up at the Pacific Symposium on biocomputing next year. And one of my, one of our uh, uh, co-chairs, uh, Sam, like I've actually never met him in person. We have only ever interacted through Twitter regarding AI and medicine. And so, you know, like there's an opportunity to find um, people that you can collaborate with um, on scientific projects, on clinical projects for setting up conference sessions particularly in this past year, because we've really been digital this past year, we haven't really been seeing each other in person. And so I think from a professional standpoint, it's been just really awesome to meet so many other people um, across the country who have similar clinical um, and research interests as me. And I think the other piece of it that's been really awesome are the opportunities for mentorship. Like the, you know, people have reached out to me um, to ask questions or to ask for advice. And I think that's also been like a really awesome way to connect with people um, and to uh, help sort of the next generation. Because certainly, I mean, it, it works both ways, right? Like I have found senior colleagues who have really, really helped me on social media and so of course like I want to pay that forward as well um, to the next generation. I'm really glad you brought up the mentoring piece at the end because as you were leading into that answer I, I was just thinking about that like I've never thought of Twitter or you know any other social media as a 
tool for reaching out for mentoring or receiving mentoring. And I think that's really interesting to think about and consider as we keep moving forward and social media keeps growing, that this could be an opportunity to have mentors that are not at your institution even and can be across the country or even across the world. So I think that's really interesting. If you are, if you are a, a mentee, for example, um, would you say that it would be professional to have people reach out to you on your personal accounts? Um, like I think to myself, I feel like Twitter would be an okay account to reach out to somebody at, but then I would think Facebook would necessarily be, you know, it might seem strange to reach out to somebody on Facebook and ask for mentorship. How would you approach that as a mentee looking for a mentor? Maybe you see somebody that inspires you and you want to reach out on social media. I mean, honestly, what a lot of people do is they find the academic email of the person and they actually just contact them via email. I think um, most of the times when I'm uh, interacting via DM, it's either like I've been tagged in a post by somebody and then I DM the person to say, hey, if you want to talk, like this is my email. Um, And of course, like when I'm interacting on DM, it's usually with people that have like already kind of established some sort of, you know, professional relationship with and I may send them uh, like something non-urgent that I think might be interesting for them to look at through DMs. But I think in the end, a lot of people do end up still like using email for making that contact. I mean, I think you guys emailed me. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Kind of similar to that. (laughs) Yeah. But I went through the academic journal route, not the Twitter route. (laughs) Um, I did want to ask, however, you said that you've been able to cultivate a lot of these relationships on social media. How do you how do you know who your friend really is on social media? I mean, I guess (laughs) (laughs) that's a complicated question. So at least with the dermatologist, most of them, we actually did have a tweet up at the American Academy in Dermatology. And so I met, I have met most of them in person at least once. Um, Mm -hmm. And those I have not, like, they're sort of well known in the community. Um, And so like their colleagues and stuff know who they are. They're, you know, they use their name, they use their photo. They're not an anonymous account. So I think that's like one way. And obviously, you know, that's a one benefit of emailing people through their like academic email addresses is like you then know that you have the real person. I mean, that's a, that's a complicated thing, right? Because mm-hmm. people do have anonymous accounts for various reasons um, that are completely appropriate. Um, but you do always have to be careful to make sure that you're interacting with who you're thinking you're interacting with. I also wanted to ask you about, have you been to a virtual meeting yet? I have been to virtual meetings. What, what was that like? Cause I, I'm the one I'm presenting at is actually a virtual meeting. So I don't like, I don't know what to expect from people. I, I don't know if it's going to be more personable, less personable than social media. Like, I think it just depends on how the meeting is set up. I've actually been to a couple, like one um, with uh, in Europe's, they had a sort of a setup for like poster presentations. I don't remember the platform they used, but you had like a little avatar and you could actually walk around to the different posters. 
So that was kind of cool. And then when you did that, you popped into like a video chat with the poster poster present. Yeah, it was kind of cool. So there's that, which is, I think, like the more fancy way, but like uh, also, for example, with conferences that may be smaller, um, it just may be that it's all on a webinar format on Zoom, like talks are either given live or they're pre-recorded with live Q&A sessions and live discussion sessions. And I think um, as long as there's like an opportunity for discussion, there's, they, they, they can be quite fruitful still. Um, obviously it's not as nice as getting to see people in person, but at least it's more environmentally friendly and more economically friendly. So what advice would you give to not just, not just me, I don't want to be selfish, but to anyone else who's going to a virtual conference or in the, in the next coming year for as long as they're going to be a thing um, in order to work on establishing potential relationships in an environment that otherwise isn't conducive to being fully engaged or present with the people that could be your potential colleagues? Yeah. So I think there's several things you can do. One is sort of like peruse ahead of time what talks you want to go to and who's giving those talks. Um, And if you have an attendee list, like peruse the attendee list and then just be sort of ready. Uh, Obviously, you shouldn't tweet about anything if it's not allowed to be tweeted about. Like that's one of the things we talk about um, with, with uh, scientific engagement on Twitter is like, it's really important to just be sure that what you're tweeting about is allowed to be shared. But like, if there's someone whose work you really admire and they're giving a presentation, like tweet about them and tag them in it, if you're allowed to share that data. And then um, you can follow up with an email afterwards too and to say, hey, I, I really enjoyed your presentation. I am a blank and I would love if you have an opportunity to have a Zoom meeting with you to discuss, you know, blank, whatever it is, like my career, um, like collaboration opportunities. So I think that's kind of how you have to do it because you're not going to have the same like bump into someone in the hallway and being able to like get their card or mm-hmm. have a like spontaneous discussion with most of these platforms. I think that's really important to think about how you can still build relationships in this virtual environment. Cause I don't think it's going away really anytime soon. And that's, I feel like one of the biggest things that people are going to miss out on with these virtual conferences is like you mentioned, rubbing shoulders. And so being more intentional with social media and how you use it to make those connections, even though you can't do it by rubbing shoulders or by sitting next to someone or talking to them. One of the things we like to end our interviews with is a question about books. And Peter and I both like to read and we both think it's really important for leaders to read and to learn and continue learning. What are some of the books that have influenced you most and some of your favorite books throughout the years that have helped shape you? I like, I've been reading a lot, but it's been like books to my toddler, essentially. (laughs) um, She actually really likes this book right now called We Are Water Protectors, which is like sort of a children's book about environmental stewardship. (laughs) Um, So that's... uh, that's one book. Um, one book that I highly, highly, highly recommend is um, Medical Apartheid. 
which talks about the history, the longstanding history of racism in medicine um, and the many, many examples uh, that have sort of fostered both inequities and rightfully deserved uh, mistrust in the medical community. And I think that that should be required reading for all medical students. It's a, mm -hmm. it's, it's difficult um, to hear some of those stories, but how much more difficult is it for our patients who have, you know, have these like real lived experiences of racism. So I think it's really important for um, that book, I think has, is just, I think it should be required reading um, for all medical students. One of the national organizations I'm part of, um, one of the chapters started a book club in response to the Black Lives Matter movement. And this was actually the second or third book that they had made a part of that, that reading group. So. Yeah, no, I, 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 I really think that that is, uh, and actually Harriet Washington, the author is on Twitter and I do follow her as well. Um, so I think Are that's you guys friends. I, I, I've never actually, I, I've not met her. I've not spoken to her, but I just think that her work is such like a fundamental, important um, book for, for people in medicine to read that, you know, I just want to sort of like follow any other content that she, she puts out. So um, yeah, I, I do think that's been a, that's been a good book. I'm trying to think of Again, it's all like, it's a lot of it has been like muddled by like all the different like toddler books that, that I've, I've <laughs> I like read on a, a daily basis. Um, but so, some of those have very good messages in it. Yeah, no, I actually had just asked on Twitter for a bunch of recommendations from people and gotten <laughs> a ton of recommendations, um, you know, books that like showcase like women and women of color who have like achieved things in science. And I think that's really great for my like toddler to see for, for role models um, and, and uh, things of that, of that nature. So I, I, I actually am very grateful to Twitter for all the toddler book recommendations that <laughs> they have uh, given me. Oh, I also really liked this book. Uh, so I actually do know the author of this one. Um, Here We Are by Arthi Shahani, uh, which is sort of it, it. Here We Are, American Dreams, American Nightmares, which is sort of her immigration, her family's immigration story. Mm -hmm. um, and it delves a lot into not only identity, but talks deeply about our like very, very flawed criminal justice system. And she was an uh, she was a former NPR tech reporter. So she approaches this book, you know, as talking about her life, like she goes in and she really digs like a reporter would. But I learned a lot about our broken criminal justice system um, from this book. Like it was like a book that made me laugh. It made me cry. You know, it made me smile. It's like, I, I, I also like highly recommend that book because I think it has a very important message. Roxana, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you coming on our show and we enjoyed this conversation very much. Thank and you I so much. To, All right. Hope to engage Take with you care. on Twitter. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck with surgery. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Bye.